I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24. You notice at the end of chapter 23 that Jesus is buried in verse 53, then he took it down. This is Joseph of Arimathea taking down the body of Jesus from the cross, wrapped it in a linen shroud, and laid it in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. It was the day of preparation. The Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath day, they rested according to the commandment. As we know, that's the context that Jesus is in the tomb. His body is in the tomb. He has been on the cross. Um, these women have seen where his body was laid in this tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. Uh, they, they know where that is, and they've gone to prepare spices and ointments uh, for honoring and embalming the body of Jesus. And then there's the day of rest. And then we pick up with our passage for today. What we'll do is we'll read the first 12 verses and then we'll read along as we, we continue. Chapter, four, chapter 24, verse 1. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we thank you for this, this greatest of news that the Lord Jesus Christ is risen. We thank you that he is not in the tomb. We thank you, Lord, that we do serve a risen Savior. We pray that now by the power of the Holy Spirit that was one with you, the Father, in raising Christ from the dead, that you would spiritually awaken us from our sleep, from our slumber, would you cause new life to come into us, Lord, as we see and understand the resurrection afresh. We believe that faith comes by hearing, 
and hearing through the word of Christ. So Holy Spirit, would you create faith? Would you help us to see our risen Savior? In his name we pray, and together God's people said, Amen. As I was thinking about my Easter sermons for the past several years, I realized that there was a theme. And the theme has been to show the benefits of the resurrection that flow to us from the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, how we are united to him in faith and how that means that death for us is not a dead end but is a doorway into the presence of God and ultimately to the resurrection of the believers, how Christ is the first fruit and we will be the fulfillment of that harvest when he returns. Looking at benefit after benefit that comes to us, including uh, the new birth that comes through the hope of the resurrection. But as I was praying about this Easter, the, just one thought just kept coming to me over and over again. Is we, we need to go back, not to the fruit on the tree, but we need to go back to the root. We just need to go back and, and not see how the resurrection benefits us, but just see the resurrection for itself. To see it again, to, to, to understand it as the gospel writers presented, and in, in today's case, as, as Luke is going to record it for us. Remember, Luke has written this gospel, which is really, it's a two-volume work. It's, it's Luke-Acts. You see when you get to Acts chapter 1 that he just picks right back up and in fact he spells certain things about the ascension out a little more fully in, in Acts 1. And, and then in Acts 2 you see the descending of the Holy Spirit in power. But these two volumes were written to a man by the name of Theophilus. And Luke says that he's been following the eyewitness testimony, he's been investigating everything carefully because he wants Theophilus, and by extension us, to have certainty of the things that we believe. So let me just ask you this. Do you believe that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead on the first day of the week after his crucifixion? Do you believe that he was raised from the dead after his body had been laid in the tomb? Now, if you're glib, if you're very quick just to say, of course I believe, then perhaps you're not thinking about this carefully enough. If we went out to uh, any and every cemetery around here, or if we thought about family members of ours that had died, every single one of them, their bodies are still in the ground. If you went to every patriarch from the Old Testament, their bodies are still in the ground. If you went to every founder of every philosophy or ideology or religion that had ever been, they live and they die and their bodies are still in the ground. This is not just something that, that, that happens from time to time, that people rise from the dead. It, had never, it, it was a new thing for them to... Uh, experienced this. This was not something that they were accustomed to. And so you have here in this chapter the realization that the disciples were no less surprised, no less skeptical than we are 
And yet they had walked with Jesus. They had heard his own prophecies about his death and his resurrection with their own ears. And yet they just couldn't seem to believe it, to take it in. It's not that they didn't want to believe. It was almost that it was just too good to believe. It's like when we have a loved one that dies and and we almost feel guilty when we think about, well, they really are, they're with Christ and they're not suffering and, and all of those things. We, we kind of think maybe we're just being sentimental. Maybe we're just avoiding the hard reality. It's just too good to be true. Well, let's just take this journey. Let's just walk through Easter Sunday one more time. Notice in chapter 24, verse 1, it says, but on the first day of the week. That, that word but is just saying there is now a great reversal. Christ is in the tomb. His body is there. They're preparing these spices, but something. There has been an intervention. There has been a change. There has been a, a shift. And it happens on the first day of the week. In the Old Testament, you see all of these, these sort of strange prophecies about the eighth day, which would be the first day of the week, and, and, all, and the idea of the eighth day almost being a, a new creation, a new world. And in fact, that's what happens. The resurrection of Jesus was not just the resurrection of one person. It was literally the dawning of an entirely new world. It was the new heavens and the new earth being raised to life. Literally, the the, the resurrected body of Jesus is our guarantee that every promise that God has made is now alive and will never die in this universe. The whole new world has been born. A new creation, a new humanity, a new Adam, an Adam that not would bring us down into sin, but the final Adam who would bring us up into life and who would bring about a, a making of all things new, a whole new world. But these women that we read about, the women who'd come with him from Galilee, they go to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. You, you, you have to love these women. And we, we read about in the Gospels how many of them, they supported Jesus out of their own pockets. They were some of his greatest supporters, financially helping the disciples, helping the itinerant ministry of Jesus. We recognize how Jesus was a person who, uh, though the misinterpretation of uh, the, the creation differences between male and female caused many first century Jewish men to demean women. Jesus was not in that category. He was a person who exalted and, and loved the role of women and had in his closest supporters many women who were followers, who listened to his teachings. He didn't stop Mary from sitting at his feet. In fact, he said, That's, she's chosen the very best portion. These women love him, and in a way that the men are, they're just sitting in their upper room grieving. They're not knowing what to do, but these women, they have a loving devotion to Jesus even in death. And notice they're going, we, we, we love him, we're going to go. As you see, even the tradition continues in the South, how many people go to the graves, decorate tombs um, at Easter in, in a very special way. So there is loving devotion from these women, but notice this. They had loving devotion, but they 
did not have firm understanding. They loved him, but they didn't get it. They were not saying, you know what, it's the first day of the week. Surely Jesus is alive. They go, as it says here, that they are taking spices, taking the spices they had prepared. They're taking spices not to go see, is he still in the grave? They're taking spices to anoint a dead body. They love him, they care for him, but they just don't get it. They are very devoted, but now they're devoted to a dead man who, like all of the other prophets before him, lived and died and would stay dead. So they weren't, by nature, going there to see a resurrection. They were going to anoint a dead man's body. Verse 2 says, they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. And in another gospel, in Mark's gospel, it says as they were going, they were talking and they were saying, how in the world are we going to roll this? This is a massive stone. How are we going to roll away that stone to be able to anoint Jesus' body with the spices? So, so they're, they're going with a heart full of love, but with a very limited understanding, not really getting what had taken place. And when they get there, the first sign is that this massive stone, and we know according to Matthew's gospel, there have been guards in front of this stone to keep it from being rolled back, that the stone has been rolled away from the tomb. So there's uh, something has taken place, some force, some body, some very strong persons have moved this massive stone from the mouth of the grave. But then as it goes on, it says in verse 3, but they went in and they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. So they're going to anoint a body. They think he's dead. They don't get it. They find the stone is rolled away and then they go in and there's no body. But it doesn't say at that moment they start shouting, hallelujah, I serve a risen Savior. They still don't get it. You have to understand these these are people not unlike us. These are people exactly like us. These are, these, we, we think about people from 2,000 years ago and we somehow think they're gullible. They're, they have fantastic ideas about the world. That they're simple. They were just like us. These are people who don't actually think this is going to happen. They don't remember what he said. They, they can't wrap their mind around it. Even though the stone has been rolled away and the body is gone, they're still perplexed. They're, they're sitting there scratching their heads. What in the world could happen? Then there's more that takes place. It says, um, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. That's the end of verse 4. Verse 5, and as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Uh, we, if you'll look with me um, over in verse 23, we know who these are. It says, but when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they'd even seen a vision of angels. Other gospels clarify that these are angelic witnesses. Uh, here, Luke clarifies too, probably hearkening back to the Old Testament that, that anything needed to be established by two or three witnesses. And here, they now have angels. And, and notice this, they, they are frightened by the angels, they bow down to the ground, they are hearing the voices of these shining men. And 
these men give them a very clear word. Why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not here, but is risen. They have angelic testimony. They have uh, a, a testimony literally from heavenly beings that Jesus has been raised. You know, I, I think it is interesting as you think about this, though. They're not captivated by this. I mean, today, I mean, I know how it is. If, if right now we had two angels appeared in the service, I know how we all are. We'd go out to lunch, and we would be going, you won't believe this. We had two angels appear at church today. It was the most amazing thing, most wonderful thing, most incredible thing. Let me tell you, there is something by far more important than two or 10,000 angels, and that's one risen Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. If you're going to be fascinated, mesmerized, drawn in by anything, it is by the Savior. Everything else pales in comparison. We, we, don't, we don't serve even these, these spiritual beings from, from another realm. We don't serve them. And notice, they are servants of God. They are testimonies. So these women have seen the, the stone rolled away. The body is gone. They have heavenly testimony that Jesus has been raised. He's not there. And then these angels even remind them, look, it's not just we're saying this. Jesus already told you this. Look in verse 8. They remembered his words. That's Jesus' words. Or if, I'm sorry, verse 6. Uh, remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee. Um, I think this is important. Jesus, his teaching was for men and women. He didn't just say, you know what, he told the guys and the guys told you. It was, it was for men and women, young and old. He was just very open. His, his message was for all. And he had been telling them, uh, about this very event. Notice what he told them, verse 7, that the Son of Man, which is immediately to draw everybody's mind to Daniel 7, must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. You know, you could go back to Luke 9.22, all the way back to Luke 9.22. Jesus had already told them that. It says they didn't get it. You, you go to verse 44 in Luke 9, same thing. You go to chapter 18, he says it again. There, Jesus does not leave them in any doubt. He says, look, by the way, here I am, but I'm going to have to suffer. He tells them he's going to have to be crucified. He's going to have to be flogged. He, he gives them every specific. Do you remember, though, when Peter heard this on one occasion in Matthew's gospel? He says, Forbid it, Lord. Stop talking like this. We don't want to hear about this. And they literally sort of like put their fingers in their ear about unwelcome news. I don't want to hear it. Stop saying this, Jesus. And they didn't get it. They didn't get that he would have to be crucified. He would have to die. But that was the precursor to on the third day, he would rise. You know, th that's one of the things you would think if they'd heard that, maybe the reason they were going to the tomb on the third day was to see if it really had happened. But they were no more believing than us. They were as surprised and, and obviously as, as hard to convince as, as we are. But, but notice this. This is, this is one of Luke's most beautiful themes over and over again. In verse 7, 
that the Son of Man must, must. Look again in verse 26. Was it not necessary? And then in verse 46, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer. Do, do, do you understand that, that Jesus dying, if it was because Satan got an upper hand, or, or, or because evil men triumphed, evil men did act. Evil men did act in an evil way. But the reason Jesus died, the reason he was crucified, is because it was the divine plan of God. It was not an accident. It was not a failure. It was not a plan B. Jesus didn't come and say, you know what, I'm offering you the kingdom and I think you might take it. And if you do, then we'll go that route. It had always been determined. He was the lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world. This was the necessary way for men that were separated from a holy God to be atoned, to be reconciled to that holy God. He had to be. It was the divine design of God. God was the architect behind even the sinful acts of men. This was something that God had determined that must happen. You know, this is so important because let me just tell you, this means that there is not one thing that happens in this world that we can look at and say, our world is spinning out of control. Our world is headed toward chaos. Our, our world is, is just completely, God just is losing. It doesn't matter how it looks. It doesn't matter how dark it gets. We know that if the darkest day, Good Friday, was all a part of the design of God, that any day that we go through, that God has a divine design and that he has a plan, and he will bring it to pass. And so it says in verse 8, they remembered the words. Oh, yeah, you know what? He actually did say that. And so they return from the tomb, and they tell all these things to the leaven and to all the rest. Now, at this moment, what do you think? That's it. The church is born. Everybody's convinced. All right, we can move on now. The women have said it. They've seen the rolled away tomb. They've seen the body is gone. Uh, they've heard the angelic testimony. They even remember the words of Jesus that said this was going to happen. It had to happen. Exactly as he said, even to the day, the third day rising. Well, notice verse 10. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other with, women with them who told these things to the apostles. What did the apostles, what was their response? But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. I, I just think we need to, when we're so quick to say, of course I believe. You shouldn't be quick to believe. You should not be quick to believe because this is extraordinary. This is one of a kind. This is, this is so, so incredible that you better be convinced. You better not be quick just to say, well, I believe it because my family's always believed it, or I believe it because the preacher says it. You better believe it because you have been convinced of it. And here are these guys, what do they say? You know what? This is an idle tale. 
Literally, the word here is, is the idea of a person who's, who's a dying person and they're in a state of delirium. I don't know if you've seen people like that, but they can say some crazy stuff, right? I mean, just all kinds of things that would never come out of their mind. They just make stuff up. It's like they're seeing a reality that just isn't reality. And that's what they see. These women, they're just, they're, they're in so much grief. It's just, it's just a response to all of the sorrow in their heart. But notice, it's not that they don't want to believe. It's not that they're not, Lord, I believe, help thou my unbelief. Because notice in verse 12, Peter rose and ran to the tomb. So it's like, I don't believe you, but let me go see. He wants to believe, but, but he's just not convinced. It doesn't make sense. He can't get his mind around it. Dead people don't come back. Especially they had seen Jesus not just die, but they had seen him be humiliated. They had seen his body literally torn apart. They had seen as the nails went into the hands and feet from a distance. They had, they had seen uh, blood running down his face. They, they, they just couldn't imagine. They had heard of where his body had been laid. But he runs and he stoops and he looks in. And you know what? He adds one more detail. Not only the stone is gone, not only the body isn't there, not only the angelic testimony that the women talk about, he saw the linen cloths by themselves. He sees the linen cloths. I think it's John's gospel. It says that the head cloth was folded separately. You know, it's, I don't know. Did Jesus fold his own cloths? That must have been really interesting. He was well taught. I mean, apparently Mary did a good job with him. But it's, it's, it's there. The linen cloths are there. So somehow this body has been unwrapped. One more piece of evidence. But is this enough? It says he went home marveling, wondering. I mean, he's like, really, I guess the best way to say this is they look at this good news and they say this is just too good to be true. It's just too good to be true. So, so let me just say this. If the resurrection does not seem like news that's too good to be true to you, You've never gotten it. You've, you've not gotten it. It is news that at first glance, it is too good to be true. It's too marvelous, too wonderful. And, and these people who are the very core of the faith, the, these first witnesses, they didn't just say, of course we believe it. Evidence after evidence is coming toward them and they can't wrap their mind around it. They're spinning. Their heads are spinning. They want to believe, but they can't believe. This, this just isn't possible. We continue on. Verse 13, that very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. I mean, don't doubt, don't doubt. Let me put it this way. Don't doubt that these disciples loved Jesus. The women and these men. I mean, these men, they literally, they, they're stopped when they go, what in the world are you talking about? They just stopped. And they're looking sad. I love what Charles Spurgeon said. He said, you know, don't tell your little children they need to love Jesus. 
Tell them they need to trust Jesus. Now, he wasn't against loving Jesus. He was one of the great proponents of it. But, but what we have is, is, is people can love a dead man. You, you can love somebody that lived and died and stayed dead. But, but, but trust is that you believe that he is who he says he is, and you believe that, that, that what has happened to him has really taken place. So these people, they, they love him, and they, they, they can't understand. Notice the power of this. This is a beautiful story. It's a little town, maybe seven miles outside of Jerusalem. They're walking back. One of them is named Cleopas, the other disciple unknown, maybe husband, wife, not sure. They're walking along, and they're discussing this. This is sort of like they're trying to process it, trying to make sense about everything that's happened. And, and you notice that Jesus comes along, and he wants to draw them out. He wants to draw them out because the whole point is, is he wants them to learn how to trust him, how to know how to walk with him. He, he, he wants them to come to that personal point that they're actually convinced. Um, couple of things just you notice. I think it's really important. I don't know what you're going to talk about. I know it's March Madness and whatever else is going on. But let me just, just try this this week. Why not when you go out to eat or you go to your families to eat for Easter, why not talk about the resurrection of Christ? Why not talk about what Christ has done and what it means? Why not talk about how it applies to those that have, have died in your family? Why not ponder this? So that's what they're doing. They're trying to process it. But I think this is one of the great failures we have in evangelism or when we're trying to deal with people who are doubters. They, they want to believe, but they don't know how to believe. Is we go too quickly to telling them rather than asking them questions. Notice what, how Jesus, what a beautiful way, how he's gently trying to understand what they know before he tells them what they need to know. He says, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? He's pulling them out. So often when we try to share about Christ with people, we immediately come in and we pour out all this stuff that we believe, and it's just like a big wall. Why not ask people, what is it that you believe? When, when somebody dies in your family, what, what is that like? engaging people. And here he's engaging them because he wants to find out what's the, what's the barrier to trust? What is it that they can't get? Their hearts are sad. They genuinely love this Jesus, but they don't get who this Jesus is, not fully. Verse 18, then one of them named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, again, drawing them out, what things? Of all people that knows what things, it's the guy to whom it's happened. <laughs> He's not asking for information. He's trying to draw them out. You know, parents, you know this. You, what, you ask your children, what did you learn at school today? I mean, you've got to find ways to draw them out. And, and here he's trying to draw them out because he wants to understand what they understand. Notice this summary that they give. Everything true, but they just don't get all of it. Verse 19 again, and they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, 
And besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. And when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they'd even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. Everything in there is absolutely true. Right? Everything in it is absolutely true. Jesus is, was from Nazareth. This is where he was raised. He, he was a real person from a real uh, back. Uh, water town in the northern part of, of the, the Roman province of Palestine. So he really was, and, and he was a prophet. We said it in our confession. He's our prophet, our priest, and our king. He was a prophet, mighty in word and deed before God. We absolutely believe. You hear the words of Jesus and you go, I've never heard anybody speak like this. He has authority. We, we've seen his might. He's, he's healed diseases that were just absolutely incurable. He goes up to people with leprosy and he can conquer leprosy. Leprosy doesn't make him unclean. He cleans the leper. He can go to people with withered limbs and make them whole. He can, he can go to people who are possessed with devils and cast them out. He can even feed 5,000 people with five loaves and two fish. He can walk on water. He can calm storms. He, he literally is a man who has mighty power. He has mighty words and he has mighty deeds. And he is a prophet, but he is more than a prophet. And that's what they do not yet get. Notice here, verse 20, how our chief priest and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death. And crucified him. You know, it's very interesting. They're not going, oh, those wicked Romans. This is what they did. The Romans actually did the execution, but they knew who was behind it. It was their own leaders. Their own leaders who were really the ones pushing this agenda. And they're not willing to kind of shift the blame and make this some nationalistic, us against the Romans kind of thing. But they still have that nationalistic idea in verse 21 but we hope that he was the one to redeem Israel. You read in, in Acts 1, it says, when are you going to actually restore the kingdom? This is one of the things. They, Jesus, by the way, is going to restore the kingdom. The kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of God and of his Christ. But what they didn't understand is Jesus was not about some little tiny political fix of getting rid of the Romans and letting the the Jews have their own nation again. And they couldn't get past that. They had thought that's what the, the triumphal entry that we celebrated last week, Palm Sunday, they thought that's what that was about. And they had gone from the high of, of Jesus coming in and being acclaimed a king to the low of him being executed as the worst of common criminals, despised before people. Everybody who had been saying, Hosanna, by the end of the week, were crying, crucify him. It was as though the devil was calling the shots, as though Satan himself had entered into the hearts and minds of the leaders and even Judas Iscariot. And you know what the Bible says he had? They hear the testimony of the women. They hear the testimony, obviously, of Peter who went to the tomb. We know from another gospel, John went with him. And you know what they're still not saying? We're convinced. He's alive. He's risen. They're not convinced. They, 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 don't, they don't see it. They're 
not just have all that evidence, they have Jesus with them, right there with them walking, but their eyes are kept so that they cannot see. In verse 25, then Jesus turns the tables and he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? You notice when he says, O foolish ones, this is one reason that commentators believe that it may have been a husband and wife because he doesn't say, O foolish men. It's actually a generic that could be male and female, and it was a, a deliberate choice by Luke. So, so perhaps it was Cleopas and his wife. But notice what Jesus calls them, foolish ones. Why? Do you remember what the Old Testament says? The fool says in his heart, there is no God. So, so let me just tell you, what he's saying is, you're acting as though the only power on earth are all of the horizontal powers that are out there. That, that the Roman power is the only power. That the power of the chief priest and the rulers, that's the only power. You're acting as though the, the common sequence of life and death and staying dead is all that's at play. To be a fool is not to realize that there is another force that can literally alter everything. It's the same God who said, let there be light, and there was light, who created everything out of nothing, and yet you believe that that God can't take his one dear precious son and raise him from the dead? And here he's calling them fools because they're looking at the world in a completely natural, humanistic horizontal way. The only way the resurrection makes sense is not just that it's some unique thing that happens in the horizontal plane. It is by the spiritual power of God. It is a divine intervention. We are not saying this is a normal occurrence. We are saying this is a supernatural occurrence. And you cannot find it by looking to the things of, of, of this world, to empirical evidence and to science. This is a supernatural reality that does manifest itself in the natural world. But he says, not only are you not recognizing the power of God, you're also not recognizing the power of the Scripture. Right? Slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Oh, I love Luke 24. You know, um, oh, I, I, hope, I hope and pray this. And Debbie, you said this, and it blessed me on, at our last supper service. You know, Debbie, we were talking, just encouraging one another around the table. And Debbie said, one of the things, Pastor, I, I love about you is you always, you really want us to see Christ from all Scripture. And, and I want to say, honestly, if you could put something on my tombstone, I, I, I don't plan for that to be next week, could be, but if you could put it on there, it's that, that he did, he preached Christ. That's, that's what I would love if it's true, that's what I would love. He preached Christ. And, and to me, this is what Christ does. He comes and says, you know what? The Old Testament, it was all about me. And in and, and, and every corner, this, this is why we don't just have, we're not just New Testament Christians. Whoever says that doesn't understand that if you take away the Old Testament out of the New Testament, you've not got much left. It, it's a fulfillment of all that went before. The prophets have been speaking of Jesus. Jesus says in John 5, Moses spoke of me. 
we, we have Jesus from beginning to end. And not only do we have Jesus, but we have the plan of salvation, the gospel. Verse 26, was it not necessary that the anointed one, the Messiah, the Mashiach, should suffer? I mean, what about Isaiah 53, the suffering servant? What about Psalm 22? What about over and over again in the Old Testament, these passages that clearly indicate that the one who is going to be God's chosen prophet, priest, and king will suffer? Not just come and lead an army to victory over whatever oppressor was in place. And after the suffering, enter into his glory. That that was the plan. Suffer and then the joy that was set before. In verse 27, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted it to them. He interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So literally, I mean, they didn't have a New Testament at this point. So he's talking about the, what we have divided out as 39 books, right? He says, I'm there. I'm there. I think this is, this is the hermeneutical key. This is how you understand the Old Testament. Um, this is how the Old Testament goes from just being ancient history of a covenant that has been fulfilled, made obsolete, to becoming one of the most dynamic life-giving forces. I mean, Paul says to Timothy that he was saved through the preaching of Jesus Christ from the Old Testament. That the, the Bible has been pointing to this. And so he goes through, and you know, people say, I would love to have heard that sermon. I would. But as you go through the gospel writers, you go through Luke, Acts, you see all of the passages that these guys use. This is probably what Jesus was, was, was telling them, had been teaching them, and reiterates during the 40-day period that you see mentioned in Acts 1. He tells them how all roads have been leading to him. That, that even though he by name was not exactly known, yet he was the point of the entire Old Testament. That he is the king that was promised. That he is the prophet that was promised. And he is the great high priest. Every road leading to Jesus. And it says in verse 28, So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he was going further, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them, and their eyes were opened. And they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven, and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord is risen indeed, and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. I love Alfred Ackley's hymn, as I said, I might change the last part. You ask me how I know he lives. He lives within my heart. Jesus was right beside them. And that is not even what they go to at this point. Do you notice what they say? While he opened to us the scriptures. <laughs> let, let me tell you, you want to see Jesus? You want to know that Jesus has been raised from the dead? 
It's not going to be on the basis of me or my testimony or my life or the quality of your life or some other Christian. It is upon the power of the authority of the revelation of God's word. Why did I just say, no fancy sermon, no three points in a poem. I'm just going to walk you through the resurrection. Why? Because I believe that this is the power of God unto salvation, presenting the gospel, presenting the scripture, just putting it out there that literally as you go, you know what? I, I get it. My mind is open and my heart is warmed. It doesn't come by telling all of these kind of heart-wrenching stories about Christ or trying to elicit emotion. It comes from just breaking open the bread of life. And when you do, your hearts begin to burn and the light begins to shine in your mind. You get it. It's a divine and supernatural light. In other words, Jesus could be raised, but apart from the Spirit of God working through the Word of God, men and women remain with the veil over their eyes and over their hearts. I'm telling you, you can know that he is alive just as surely, just as confidently as these two disciples on the road to Emmaus. And what's it from? Just taking your time and walking through this scripture, walking through these verses, And thinking about how they interacted, how hard it was for them. And yet, in table fellowship, when he came close, their eyes were open. You know, I think about Jesus saying in Revelation 3.20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him. And he with me. Jesus wants to live in your heart. He wants table fellowship. He wants that close communion with you. He wants to sup with you and you with him. He he wants that so that you know it. Yes, because the scriptures have said it and the spirit has convinced you. But he also, you you are sure that he does live in your heart because you've ate, you've eaten with him. We now... Go quickly to the end, verse 36, as they were talking about these things. Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace to you. So they run back to Jerusalem. And then Jesus comes to those disciples and says that they were startled and frightening and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. Again, is Jesus a spirit? Uh, And he said to them, why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? These guys, they're not, he's, he's with them and they're still doubting. Don't be glib. Don't be quick. Look at it from every angle. See every possibility, just like they did. Have every objection in the world, but see that Jesus is one by one answering them, bringing the walls of doubt down. Now, now by the way, you notice he says in verse 39, see my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. If Jesus did not believe in in spirits, this would have been a good time to instruct them. He's saying, I'm just not one of those. I I actually have been raised. Now, his body is a supernatural body, but it is a part of the material universe. It has physicality because it can be touched. You can see it. He, He even bears on his hands and feet the marks. He says in John's gospel to doubting Thomas, you know, put your hand in my side. 
touch that. Know that it really is me. It's not just some God started over. It is a continuity. Yes, I am the fulfillment. I am that supernaturally raised body. But it is still Jesus who walked with you in the dusty streets of Palestine. I'm the one from Galilee. I'm the one who was with you in the boat on the sea. I'm that one. Touch me. See. And just to make it even more, verse 40, and when, when he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. Imagine seeing those nail prints. And while they still disbelieve for joy, you know what, that, that's the phrase I've been using. Disbelieve for joy just means they think this is just too good to be true. So in other words, let me just tell you, if you don't think the resurrection is at some level just too good to be true, you've never taken it in. It is too good to be true, but it is true because of God. And then he said to them, have you anything to eat? I love this. Jesus, it seems like every encounter he has with people after the resurrection, he's, he's wanting to eat. He's just wanting to eat. And, and here, partly because you can see that he's not a ghost, he really is a, a human. He's eating and he's taking this in. They gave him a piece of boiled fish and he took it and ate it, not in a corner where they couldn't see it. It didn't just disappear. He ate it right before them. They watched him eating. And then it says, then they said to him, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. He reminds them, look, I already told you this, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, that's designating the three parts of the Old Testament, he said, must, must be fulfilled. God had a plan before the foundation of the world. He's never veered from that plan. Even the worst blows of the worst evildoers on earth have never stopped that plan. And let me just tell you, it's not stopped it now. It's not stopped it now. And then he says, verse 45, he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. He's not just still saying, look, oh, by the way, all you need now is me. You don't need the Bible. See, you need the scriptures. Let me just show you. Let me open the mind. And you know what you've got? You've got the scriptures. You have what they had. But you know what we need? We need the Holy Spirit to open our minds to understand these scriptures, to understand, and thereby we can actually have fellowship with the Lord Jesus. And then it says, verse 46, he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Then he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple, blessing God. So you have here the Christ had a plan. The plan was that he would suffer and that on the third day he would rise from the dead. And then from that point, that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name. We are called to know Christ, but not just to go, okay, I got it. I know him. I've gotten forgiveness of sins. My sins are forgiven. I've turned from unbelief to belief. I've turned from a, a life of loving self and loving the, the ways of the world to, to following Christ. I've repented. The, the, the proclamation is now put on the disciples. Uh, here, speaking directly to them, you are witnesses of these things. By extension, us. 
We are not only to know Christ, to see Christ, to believe in his resurrection, that he had to die, that he did rise, that he does offer forgiveness of sins, and that we can turn from a life that is going in the wrong direction, but that we are to be witnesses. And notice what it says, that you should be, should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. Why are we 7,000 miles away, 2,000 years later, still talking about this earthquake that happened on the first day of the week with the resurrection of Jesus and the seismic shock of Pentecost 50 days later. The reason is, is because this once in human history event was the dawn of a completely new age. And it is a message not only for the Jews, but it is a message for the world. And somebody told somebody who told somebody who told somebody, who told you. And you saw it in the scriptures, and the Spirit of God created faith in your heart, and you believed. Notice here you, in verse 49, you've got the Holy Spirit. I, the Son, am sending the promise, that's the Holy Spirit, of my Father upon you. So you, you now, as he says in Matthew's gospel, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we are now immersed into this, this most fundamental of realities in all of the universe. We are immersed into the one God who is the Father, Son, and Spirit. And let me just tell you, he wants you to be fully convinced that he rose from the dead, that people can have their sins, whatever they are, forgiven, that people can change, they can turn by the power of his Spirit, by the preaching of this gospel, and that it is for all people because he is Lord over all. He, he wants us to know that so that we can proclaim that. We, we are to know him, and as we are fully convinced, we'll want to make him known. We will want to make him known. So this Easter, my prayer is, as you've gone to the empty tomb, you've walked on the road to Emmaus, you've gone back to the upper room, that the Spirit of God would have convinced your heart, I serve a risen Savior. He's in the world today. I know that he is living, whatever men may say. Do you know it? And if you do, will you make him known? Would you pray with me? Father, on this Easter Sunday, we've come again to the empty tomb. We've walked on this road and, Lord, we at first think ourselves so much better than these skeptical and surprised and doubting disciples. But Lord, you show us that the enemy always has some little back door where he's trying to keep us in unbelief. But Lord, thank you that your word addresses all of those, all of those potential pitfalls and roadblocks and you, you show us how we really do serve a savior that has been raised from the dead and we can have certainty of that through the scriptures and by the power of the Spirit, and then we can desire to herald him to others, to tell others of who that Savior is. Lord, I pray that that would be our desire over lunch, over this week, to talk to women and men, boys and girls, of a risen Savior, and of forgiveness of sins, and a new life, even life everlasting, that can be found in him. And together God's people said, Amen.